Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 will be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. Verses 1 through 14. We'll go ahead and read the first six verses together, and we're going to look at the idea of true greatness and how it differs often from the way we view greatness together. And we're going to see this morning that true greatness is humble faith in Jesus. True greatness is humble faith in Jesus. We'll begin reading in Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Well, if I say I fight like a butterfly, sting like a bee, you think of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is kind of famous for a spoken word poem that he wrote in 1963 entitled, I Am the Greatest. And someone asked him about that poem and he said, I'm not the greatest, I'm the double greatest. And when it came to boxing, it was kind of true of Muhammad Ali. It's been some time since he was around, but he was a larger-than-life figure really up until the time he died, and his legend continues to live on because he was such a great boxer. Well, Mark chapter 9 tells us about a conversation that Jesus' disciples are having, and Jesus hears them talking, and he says, what are you talking about? And like kids with a parent, I don't know, they're a little bit embarrassed to admit it, and so they won't say anything. But the argument they're having there is about Who's going to be the greatest? And here we have them coming out and finally asking Jesus that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, we aren't usually quite that outspoken. We aren't usually quite that, I don't know, we're a little more subtle than that. So we don't come to come out and talk about it. We might, I don't know, casually drop, you know, what kind of car we drive or measure our status by the kind of house we own. Or if maybe we're not in a lucrative line of work, maybe we, I don't know, kind of manifest that through bragging about our sports teams and kind of trash-talking a little bit. We all have different ways that we manifest being the greatest. I mean, if you're not into that, you know, when you fish, you know, it's about the size of fish that you catch. I mean, we all have ways of trying to answer this question, who is the greatest? The disciples go even a step further, though. They don't just ask who is the greatest. They ask, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In other words, who is the greatest in God's eyes? Now, here we've got a bunch of grown men, and they're sort of having a chest-thumping session. You know, like, who's the biggest, who's the tallest, who's the greatest? And Jesus, to kind of put them in their place, pulls in a little kid. And he takes this little kid, imagine this picture. You've got these these grown men sort of arguing with each other, a dozen men. It's It's no small group. And they're sort of kind of thrusting themselves to the front and kind of insisting, you know, on their greatness versus one or another. I don't know. And maybe because they're fishermen, they are arguing about the size of fish they catch. You don't know. And then Jesus takes this little child and he says, here, this is true greatness. Mark tells us that he takes this child and he holds him in his arms. So it's probably a fairly young child. It's not, you know, a, a teenager. This is a small child. And when Jesus brings his child on his lap, the old King James says it this way, Verily I say unto you, the way Jesus says it here in our more modern versions is, Truly I say to you. And this is an expression that Jesus uses when he's about to say something important. 
He kind of introduces it this way and he says, listen up. What I'm about to say to you is of vital importance. And then he begins building a picture of greatness and it's a surprising picture. When you're a kid, what is the whole point of life? Getting bigger. I mean, first it's conversations about getting teeth. Then it's conversations about losing teeth. And then it's conversations about getting bigger teeth. Or as you march through life, you know, you can't wait to move from first grade to second grade to third grade. There there are these measures, really, of, of progress, of growth, of kind of advanced greatness. Well, we know that when you're an adult, it's not a good thing to act like a kid. In fact, this morning, if you saw a two- or three-year-old throw a tantrum and throw himself on the ground, you wouldn't think it's a good thing, but you wouldn't just, like, react in shock or horror. But if you saw Donnie Webb throw himself on the ground, he might think something was wrong. You see, adults don't act like small children. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So when Jesus says, you must become like a child, what's he talking about? Well, if you enter into an adult stage of life, what you do is you enter into a period of life where you care for yourself. You feed yourself, get yourself dressed. In fact, if you walked into our house tomorrow evening and you saw either my wife or my kids spooning food into my mouth, you would think maybe one of three things. We're playing a game, hopefully. Two, I've been badly injured and incapacitated. Or something is seriously wrong with me. Because you know that adults kind of reach a stage where they, they feed themselves. But to be a child is to be at some level in a position of dependence. And so if you, if you progress through life from infant to toddler to kid to adolescence to adulthood, what you're doing is you're moving through stages of complete dependence when you're a very young child to progressive independence to complete independence, hopefully. And so there's this process of growing. And what Jesus says is he, that, that we must turn and become like children. This word turn, the NIV calls change, and the old KJV says you must be converted. The point is that Jesus is saying you must be, you must completely change your way of life, your way of thinking as an adult, and become like a child to enter God's kingdom, because to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must know that true greatness is childlike dependence on God. And so there's this kind of changing equation as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. Following Jesus means that we go from insisting on our independence as adults to complete dependence on Christ. In fact, uh, we're several months away from it, thankfully, but but each year, if, if you go through and you fill out your own taxes or have you have someone do it for you, they ask you a question on there. They ask about people who live in your house and they call them what? Dependence. Because they depend on you at some level for your living. So children are dependents, which means that when they kind of move out and they're on their own, they are independents. Well, I frequently have conversations with people about their relationship with the Lord or if they know God, and I'll ask them questions like this, like, what is the gospel? How do you come to know Jesus? Or how do you know, how do you, how do you know if you're going to heaven? A lot of times people will say things like, well, I've always been a pretty good person. Or I'm doing my best. And what Jesus is saying is, that's the answer of an adult. 
Someone who thinks they can kind of pave their own way, who can do it themselves, who on their own can act this way. And what he's saying is, to enter God's kingdom, you must think like a child. You must act like a child. You must become dependent on me like a child and admit that you're not good, that you can't do it, that doing your best isn't good enough, and that only by depending on me as a child depends on his parents, only in that way can you become a citizen of this kingdom. We're unable We are dependent. You see, the essence of becoming a Christian is to admit this, that God's grace alone, not our goodness, not our ability, not our independence, qualifies us to become citizens of Jesus' kingdom. So if you've typically thought of your relationship with God as being built on the idea that you are a good Christian person, what Jesus is saying is you're having the same conversation that these disciples are having. It's It's not the right conversation. You must become like a child. God calls us to turn from our sinful independence and trust Jesus alone. In our culture, we're used to thinking of kids as pretty important. In fact, you don't have to listen to too many clips before a politician will, you know, say something outlandish, and they'll say, we have to do this outlandish thing for whom? For the children, you know, do it for the children. Well, in the first century, though, Children are considered insignificant, not just young, but they're an insignificant part of society. I mean, they're not producers of commerce. They can't fight in a war. They can't really advance your household, and they aren't ready to lead a community. So kind of in this mindset, they're very insignificant. So when Jesus says to a group of men who aspire to lead a kingdom, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest, this is one of the most insignificant and humbling pictures imaginable. I mean, we all aspire to something. We think about aspiring to greatness, but Jesus says that true greatness aspires to be humble. Well, what in the world then is humility? I like the way that C.S. Lewis put it. Lewis is the, the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia, and he has a helpful picture of what it means to be humble. He says, to even get near humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. Don't imagine if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you, of course, that he's no one. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He won't be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. In other words, what Lewis is saying here is that true humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. From the time we're young, we're taught that to be great is to achieve, to accomplish. When I was in elementary school, I remember the week I got to be line leader. I mean, it it meant that you got to be the one who opened the door, who went first, who helped the teacher, being first in line. And yet Jesus says, the last will be first and the first will be last. In our world, the first are first and the weak finish last. But Jesus says in his world, it's the opposite. So what he's saying is, if you want to to know God, to follow God, take everything you think about the world and flip it on its head, and and then you're getting the idea. In our world today, if you think about greatness, big, humble, or big, great people, you might think of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Good-looking, muscular, on top of the world, jumping from a rope and crushing someone else. But what Jesus says, it's someone like this, Helen Roosevelt. Now, you probably don't know Helen, and I don't know her personally, but she's a 20th century missionary in Africa. Labored there for many years, medical clinics, 
leprosy, maternity centers, established a 250-person hospital. Well, she's in Congo during revolution, and she tells what happened to her. She says, they found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet only to strike me again, the sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouth full of sticky blood, my glasses gone. What happens after that is worse, but I won't describe it here. And she described the process of breaking that one in her. She had given her life to follow Christ, thought she was there to reach people, to help people. And she says at the end of this, she says that God confronted her in her thinking. He says, you no longer want Jesus only, but Jesus plus. Jesus plus respect, popularity, public opinion, success, and pride. You want to feel needed and respected. And she says, either it must be Jesus only, or you'll find you have no Jesus. You see, to be great in Jesus' kingdom is to empty yourself of yourself, to become truly humble, to follow Christ. Helen Roosevelt realized what Jesus models, because Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself, was struck, beaten, spit upon, set aside his rights, his comforts, his aspirations. He was spit on and he hung naked on a cross. And what Jesus says is you must humble yourself like Jesus has humbled himself. I mean, it may be that for you, God has great success in your future. It may also be that the road ahead lies marked with suffering and conflict. And what Jesus says is that true greatness embraces the humility of Christ. And then in verse 5, he tells us, moves kind of from what great people are to what great people do. So when we think of children, often we think of innocence. But we said, remember, that not only are first century children innocent, they're not seen as very significant people. And so Jesus also says that true greatness welcomes the insignificant. So first, we have to become like children. And then he says in verse 5, we must welcome those who are like children. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I mean, Jesus says this in a very emphatic way. Whoever receives one such child, he says, me, he receives. To receive a little one like this is to receive me, to embrace me. The reward for this kind of ministry is receiving Jesus himself. And Jesus says, if you do this in my name, so there's this picture, you embrace this child in the name of Jesus, and in doing this, you are embracing Jesus himself. So to come in Jesus' name is to trust in Jesus. And to expand what Jesus is saying, true Christians... Welcome anyone like Jesus welcomes anyone. And just as there is this amazing reward for receiving these people, there's great punishment for doing the opposite. Great punishment, Jesus says, for causing them to sin, for causing them to stumble. And he says, it is better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be drowned than to cause a little one to sin. Now, I don't care how well you can swim. You can't swim with, swim with one of these around your neck. It's a plunge straight to the bottom. To tempt someone away from Christ to sin leads, Jesus says, to the harshest punishment. You might do this by leading people directly to sin. Yet in America, we've done this in other ways. We've done this by building churches that are for those who can get in themselves, by building churches that are segregated where the one that is not like the other, they sit in the back or sit in the balcony. 
So how is it that the people of God can reject those who Jesus welcomes? Jesus is a, there's a great consequence for this kind of activity. Jesus welcomes any repentant sinner, and we should too. So when people who dress differently, look different, smell different, have a different color of skin, a different culture, a different style, when they come in, Jesus' people, like Jesus, should welcome these people because Jesus welcomes us. When God blesses us with the presence of people with special needs, people we're not sure how to touch, how to reach, how to minister, like Jesus, we should welcome them too. Now, if you adults will give us a break for just a minute, I want to talk to the, uh, the kids here. So that by that, I'm, by kids, I mean eight, 18 under. Because what Jesus says here is that you are significant in his kingdom. And you then are also a significant part of our church family. Jesus says that we adults have to become like you to enter God's kingdom. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he, Paul writes to the church, he says, now don't think that you need the, like the really important parts of the body. He said, actually, the parts that you think are the most insignificant, those are the parts that are the most necessary. Our church needs you. Our church needs your youth. Our church needs your vitality. Our church needs your gifts. So the fact that you are here isn't just because, I don't know, your parents dragged you. Now, it may be today you're here because your parents dragged you here. But it is because in the economy of God's kingdom, he builds true greatness on the idea of what it means to become like a child. So you, you are pictures of true greatness in Jesus' kingdom. We want to thank you for being here with us. Well, let's read now verses 7 through 9 together. And Jesus kind of switches targets a little bit. We move from who is the greatest to the idea of temptation. Verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has taught this idea, but he teaches us here that true greatness radically fights sin. He taught the same thing in Matthew chapter 5 where he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So Jesus now expands on that idea, that idea. He says, avoid sin yourself. Fight sin in your own body, but also don't lead others to sin. Don't bring temptation to others. Like someone luring someone in. Sin is like a guide. Leading someone to destruction. And human beings can lead others to sin. So Jesus says, what in the world is worse than sinning? Leading someone else to sin. And the language that he uses here is interesting. It's not actually tempting that Jesus is focused on, so much as being the one who sort of creates the environment for someone to sin and provides the vehicle for temptation. So when we think about our relationship with others, we have to think very intentionally and carefully about how our thoughts, words, and actions can lead them to sin. Now, we might think of, I don't know, like really bad cultural sins, and there's a sense in which certainly we don't want to lead someone toward very graphic sin. 
But I think it's more common that we're creating environments in our home where we make it hard for our kids to listen. Because as mom or dad, the way we exercise our authority is so unchristlike, so proud, so not humble, that's hard for our kids to listen. Or on the flip side, kids exercise their kidness in a way that makes mom or dad, it makes it hard, you know, to love kids sometimes because they're really hard to be around. Or maybe the way we treat one another in, in, in the body of Christ is so unkind, so confrontational, so unloving that it actually sort of leads others into sin. And Jesus says, woe, woe to you if you lead someone to sin. Why? Because the consequences of sin are so great. It is better to be lame, to cut off a hand, he says, than to be thrown into the eternal fire. He's saying this, it's better to experience great difficulty for one lifetime than to experience damnation for eternity. And the sin for which Jesus died is the same sin in which we are leading one another. Jesus uses the word better a few times here. Verse 6, let's see what's better. He said, it's better to drown. Verse 8, it's better to be crippled. Verse 9, it's better to be blind. Those don't sound better. (laughs) Those all sound worse. Crippled, drowned, blind, they all sound terrible. So why does Jesus say that's better? It's like he's holding up this giant scale. And, and on one side is eternity. And the, on the other side is life in this world. And he says it's, it's better to suffer in this world. It's better to be blind here. Better to be crippled here. Better to drown here than to lead someone to perish forever. No matter how good, how fun, or how exciting sin is, it is not worth damning your soul or someone else's forever. We have a lot of problems in the world. Disease, poverty, broken communities, but each of these problems pales in comparison to the consequences of sin. Romans 5 tells us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all. It's like this infectious disease that has spread to everyone. So the bad news is that we are all born sinners justly condemned under the condemnation of God, yet there is good news too, because as much as sin spread to all men, so Paul also says in Romans 5, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, much greater, in a much greater way, has the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So there's this great problem. It's universal. It's spread to all men. How do you get bigger than universal? God says somehow the gift of Christ, the gift of grace through faith in Christ is much greater. It abounds in a greater way than the universal problem of sin. There's nothing bigger than universal, and yet the grace of God through Jesus Christ is bigger even than this. And it can be anyone who places his faith in Jesus. So if you're here this morning without Christ, would you turn from your sin and trust in this free gift that abounds to eternal life for anyone through Jesus Christ? This brings us to our final section, verses 10 through 14. Let's read those verses now. Matthew 18, 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it 
more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We see here that true greatness loves like God loves. Jesus tells us a remarkable story about a shepherd. This guy has a hundred sheep. And among these hundred sheep, one goes wandering off. Now, he has 99 that are there, healthy, safe, sound, secure, strong. But a lazy shepherd might think, no big deal. I've got 99 sheep, and they're good. One, not a big deal. But the good shepherd sees the one sheep in danger, and he goes out in search of this sheep. The 99 are, are safe. This is like a settled, happy security. But when he finds the one, there's a party. There's this gigantic celebration. And this sort of picture, I've, I've never been a, a shepherd. I've never, I mean, I guess I've seen a few sheep in my life, never had a sheep. But I have had kids. And kids can go wandering off too. And if you've ever had the experience, and thankfully we're kind of just emerging from this stage, now that our, our, our son is, is three and a half, he's not quite so prone to just take off. But if you've ever had this experience, now kids, you might think, go at the speed, go at the rate of normal human beings. They don't. They vanish like that. I mean, it's like they hop on a motorcycle and they're gone. And so, you know, one minute you're turning, you're having this conversation, and your, your, your child, I mean, he is right there. And you turn, and there's this vast ocean, and he's disappeared. Have you ever had that experience, the terror as a parent of not knowing where a child has gone? And if that lasts longer than a few seconds, a few minutes, imagine 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Imagine a period of time where your child has disappeared and you have no idea where that child is. And imagine the joy you feel when you find that child. There's relief in that moment. Now, you might say to that child, don't go wandering off like that, but you don't feel like punishing that child because what you feel in that moment is the joy of finding your missing child. And that's a picture that Jesus gives us here. He talks about it in sheep and shepherd terms, but he elevates it beyond a sheep. Look again at verse 10. He says, in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father. In verse 14, it's not the will of my father that one of these little ones should go missing. And Jesus says, if a shepherd is going to chase down his sheep, you better believe your heavenly father has come chasing after you. The picture here is he's talking about sheep one minute, and the next minute he's talking about a father in heaven looking for his children. In Luke 15, Jesus comes at this another way. He tells three stories about lost things. He tells a story about a lost coin. He tells a story about a lost sheep, like this. And then he tells a story about a lost son. Now, we know this story as the prodigal son. But do you remember that story? There's his son, and he doesn't go wandering off innocently. He rebels against his father. He essentially steals his inheritance early. What's owed to him after life, he takes from his dad in life. And he goes wandering off, and he spends it all. And he's there one day, and he's, he's thrown everything he has after sin, and he wakes up one morning, and he's in a pigsty. And he says, what in the world am I doing here? I'm sitting here eating pig slop, and the, father, and the servants at my dad's house have a lot better things to eat than I have here. And so he's, he, he comes up with this plan, and he creates this plan. He says, you know what? I'm going to go home, and I'm going to beg my dad for mercy. I'm going to say, Dad, if you'll just let me work here, I'll work for what I can eat. And so he goes home, and you, can, you get this picture, you know, the boy who kind of walked off proudly, left dad in the dust, perhaps with tears in his eyes, rejecting him, holding him at arm's length, and he comes trudging up the road now, humble, broken, desperate, and hungry. And as he comes, he no doubt comes with the shame, the guilt of everything that he's done. And do you remember the picture in Luke 15 of, of the father 
What's the father doing? The father is sitting on his front porch. He's not out there drinking a glass of lemonade or smoking a pipe. He's there looking. He's been looking for his son. And his son comes trudging up the road. And the father gets up from his seat. And he goes running to meet his son. And he embraces him. He throws his robe on him. He puts a ring on his finger. And he tells his servants, throw the calf on the barbecue. We are having a party. My son is lost. But now he is found. The father pursues his child. He runs after him. And the picture that Jesus gives here is that our father in heaven pursues his children in the same way. So when we go wandering off and we we have this, this question, will God welcome me home? The picture Jesus gives us is of the father on his front porch getting up and running out to meet his son. And you imagine as a parent or someone if, if that loved one came walking up the road, how you would feel in that moment. You'd get up and you'd run. And Jesus says in a much greater way, our Father in heaven welcomes us. He throws a party. He says, my son was lost and he is found. The sheep has come home. I found the missing money. Jesus says, God rejoices in finding his child. And parents, especially if you're older parents, picture the love of the Father for his children. And the way he pursues us. And do not lose hope in your wayward children. If you've experienced the brokenness of rejection, the brokenness of questions, the brokenness of faith, the brokenness of a broken relationship, do not lose heart. The father pursues his children. And then one final question for all of us. Who are we pursuing this way? What sinner, what broken sinner are we pursuing with the love of God in this way? Who do we know who's, who's wandering, lost, broken in danger of experiencing this torment and this judgment that Jesus talks about here? Who are we pursuing for the sake of the gospel? So as a congregation, yes, let's reflect the welcoming love of Christ. That's what he says, welcome these children. But he also closes with the pursuing love of God for sinners. Brothers and sisters, who are we pursuing? Who are we chasing? What person in danger are we seeking to rescue? Let's reflect the love of the Father in welcoming, but reflect the love of the Father in pursuing sinners. Because God will save anyone, but he cannot save them if they do not hear. Who is God calling you to pursue for the sake of the gospel? Let's take a minute now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.